And let me ask you, if you will, please open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4. We'll take a break this week from our study in the Gospel according to Mark and look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, as we think this morning about the greatest gift that has ever been given. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 to 10 says this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you for the gift that your word is to us, for the gift that your spirit is to us, and yet we know that we only have come to recognize the gifts of your spirit and your word because of the gift of your son. He is the one who has made a way for us to have life, to have our eyes opened, to see clearly, to hear rightly, and to understand truly. And so as we take some time this morning then to think about things that we fairly regularly think about, we ask, Lord, that you would inflame our hearts once again for these old and dear truths. We pray, Lord, that we would not be familiar with these things in a way that would lead them to grow dull to us, though we confess that our hearts are prone to do that. We would ask that you would help us this morning so that our hearts would be enlarged and enlivened and excited and invigorated by the reality of the gift that you've given to us, Lord. We pray that as we study your word now, as we think about the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would help us to rest in him and to treasure him, that you would help us to know that the only reason we know anything is because of him. Lord, open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law today. We pray that as we approach your word that you would give us humble hearts that hunger for these truths, these truths that would teach us Not just facts about you, but teach us who you are in your person. Remind us, Lord, that this is not an intellectual exercise only, but a deeply spiritual exercise, a personal exercise where you reveal yourself to us in your word and we get to see you. So help us to rightly see you today in your word, Lord. We believe what you say that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think with me for just a moment, if you can remember, what is the best Christmas gift that you have ever received? Maybe your mind goes all the way back to when you were a child, or maybe your mind goes back to some time more recently. 
But either way, your mind searches for something that thrills your soul, or at least it did at the time. I want you to think also not just about what the best gift that you ever received was, but I want you to think about what the best gift you ever gave was. Might be a little bit more difficult to think about what the best gift you ever gave was, especially depending on where it falls on the chronological timetable. The best gift you ever gave. I want you to think about something else. I want you to think about what it was that motivated you to give the best gift that you ever gave. Three questions I want you to think about. The best gift you've received, the best gift that you have given, and what it was that motivated you to give that best gift in the first place. My guess is that a variety of answers would, we would find a variety of answers in the first two questions, the best gift you've ever received and the best gift you've ever given. And that would certainly be a fun thing to talk about later. While those answers might vary, I would suspect that most likely the answer to question number three would be pretty consistent. What was it that motivated you to give the best gift that you have ever given? My guess is most likely that you would say something like or something that reflects the reason that motivated me to give the best gift I ever gave to someone was because I loved them. Whether the best gift you ever received was a a Rambo tent, maybe that was mine, or the best gift you've ever given was something else. My guess is that most likely the reason that you gave the best gift you've ever given was because you loved, deeply loved the person that you gave that gift to. I want to tell you that there's a reason for that. The reason goes deeper than because you loved them. The reason actually connects itself all the way back to creation itself. The reason that mankind might have different versions of their best gift, whether received or given, we'd all have different answers for that. There's a reason for that as well. But the reason that most likely, whether you ask a Christian or a non-Christian, what's the best gift you've ever given, the reason that they would say, I gave that gift, was most likely because they loved the person that they gave the gift to. And the reason for that is because mankind is created in the image of God. And while natural man has fallen and is entirely corrupted by sin, the reality is that image has been marred, but it's not been destroyed. We have been made and wired to do things that are inherent to us because of the one who made us. It was not our idea to give gifts, and in fact, to attempt to give the best gift that we could possibly give to someone that we love. That was not our idea. That was God's idea. And in fact, that gift, while it was given within time and given at a certain point in time, in the fullness of time, as Paul says in the scriptures, that gift was not planned in that moment, but that gift is actually a reflection of the eternal love of the triune God himself. 
That gift demonstrates to us the love of God, but it demonstrates to us not something that began with the giving of that gift, but instead it's rather something that was an overflow of what the triune God was already eternally experiencing and sharing and enjoying within himself, love. And so this is why we give gifts, Christian or not, because we understand what it is to love someone and we understand that the greatest reflection of love is giving. We see that most clearly and most especially as Christians in the Father giving the Son for us. And so this morning, as we look at these two verses, verses most likely very familiar to you, most especially verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us. As we look at these familiar verses, I want us to think about them and sort of just camp out for a while. So that as we reflect on the greatest gift that has ever been given, we would understand that Of course, that gift was given not by humanity, but that gift was given to humanity, and that gift was given from God himself. As we think about this reality, then, I want us to see from these two verses, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, I want us to see five features of the gift of Jesus that help us to treasure what we have been given. Five features of the gift of Jesus that help us to treasure what we have been given. Perhaps that greatest gift you were ever given, whatever it was that you thought of, perhaps you still own it. But I would venture to say that it's likely, or at least possible, that you don't own it anymore. Or if it is, or if it is still in your possession, it may not have such a significant place in your life anymore. We must admit that as we continue to wrestle with the temptations of our own flesh, that if we're not careful and if we're not intentional, the gift of Jesus Christ can have that same reality, that same reflection in our lives. Now, of course, it should not. It should never lose its luster. It should never lose its shine, its glory, The problem is not with the gift, the problem is with us. The problem is that we so often fail to see the goodness of God. And the problem is that we don't see Jesus in the same way that we see that most precious gift that you have received. And so we look to the scriptures with not the eyes of our physical flesh, but the eyes of faith. As we, real, as we understand the reality and, and continually seek to grasp the reality that Jesus truly is the greatest gift that God has ever given to us. I spoke with a A woman this week, not here, so you don't have to try to figure out who it was. I spoke with a woman this week who came to me in tears. She came to me in tears because she said, 
the thing that I want most in life is to have a child. And I don't have a child. She said, I have two children in heaven. But so far, God has not given me a child. And she actually said, through tears, I feel like the only thing I have to contribute to this world is to have a child. I feel like I don't contribute anything to this world because I don't have a child. That's hard. And yet that's the reality of living in a fallen world. I did my best by the the help of God to help her to understand that as she expresses faith in Jesus Christ that her goodness, her standing, her contribution to the world is, is actually not dependent on her but dependent entirely on Jesus Christ. And now that she is in Christ by faith, she's no longer defined by who she is, what she does, or in fact what she is unable to do because of the limitations of a fallen world. Yet I have to tell you, we ended that conversation with her still in tears, not quite able to grasp yet by faith. She, she knows it's true that Jesus is the best gift to her, and yet she feels the pain of a fallen world in her heart in, in not being able to understand why she can't do something that God so clearly, it seems, wills for her to do in the scriptures. Now, our temptation to struggle with the, the beauty and the value and the worth of the gift of Jesus might not be that serious. But the temptation is still there, isn't it? The reality is, it is a struggle. As long as we live in, in this fleshly body and in this fallen world, it is a struggle and a daily constant battle for us to to commit every single day to remembering the value of Jesus Christ to us. And so as we reflect on these two verses then, I think that these five features of the gift of Jesus, the gift of the very Son of God himself, ought to help us to treasure him more. So let's dive in then to these five features and let's look at this beautiful gift of the giving of God's very own Son. First of all, I want us to think about this reality, that the gift of Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's love. The gift of Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's love. Look at verse 9, the very beginning there. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In this. that God sent his only son into the world. Now you back up just one verse ahead of that, and in fact, this, these two verses fall within the context of John explaining to a, a confused church in a, in a fallen world because 
there were people that John calls antichrists, people who were convinced that Jesus was not the true son of God and were spreading a false gospel and a false view of who Jesus was. And it was wreaking havoc in their church and and the fact that they were leaving the fellowship had the people wondering what was going on. How could things be so difficult in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so John has been explaining to them the reality of who God is and what God has done through Jesus Christ and, and the, the effect that that also has within a community of people that believe in Jesus. What is that primary effect in the people of God? It's love. So John has over and over again not only told them about God's love for them, but he's also told them and reminded them that if if God has shed his love on you, if he's poured out his love on you, then it is a necessary qualifier. And, And even more than that, is it a basic foundational truth that you will pour that love out onto your fellow Christians? And so it falls within the context of him explaining their need to love one another. And rather than just sort of sticking out his bony, pointy little finger at them and just telling them, you better love each other, he says, love each other because of the way that God has loved you. And so verse 8 says, anyone who does not love God does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Notice John does not just say that God does love, though he does. Love exudes from God, it flows from him, but it flows from him because he is love. How do we know anything about love? Because there is a God. Not because we were so clever to figure out how to love one another. We can't figure out how to love one another. You look at the fallen world and you look at the headlines and you realize, yeah, they don't know how to love each other. But then sadly, you look within the church sometimes and you see, yeah, they're still struggling to love each other too. And yet, what is the anchor of all of that? What is the ballast to that? Not our actions, but the actions of God. And in fact, the actions of God that flow from the person of God. It's not just that God does love, but in fact, it is that God is love, and that's why he loves. And so then John says, essentially, how do we know that God is love? Well, we might say because we believe that God is love. We believe what the scriptures say, and that would certainly be right. But God does us one better. How do we know that God is love? In this, John says. In this, the love of God was made manifest or was revealed. The word means to have a a public display of something. Can you see love What do you think? Can you see it? Can you see something emanating from the soul of one person to the soul of another person? I mean, maybe some people around our area would claim to see things. 
But the reality is you can't see love. You see expressions of love, but you can't see love itself. God knows that. Of course he knows that. And so it wasn't enough for him to just say, I am love, but he then demonstrated his love so that we would not see love itself, but we would see what love looks like in action. And in fact, isn't that the very basis of love itself? It's an action demonstrated towards someone else. And as we move through the text, we're going to see that not only is it an action demonstrated towards someone else, but it's an action that costs me something given to someone that doesn't even want it to begin with. That's love. And so the gift of Jesus, the giving of the Son, is the ultimate expression of God's love. How do we know that God is love? Because God gave his Son, that's how. It's so simple, isn't it? And yet it is so profound. This probably jogs your mind to another famous passage that John wrote, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How do we know God loves the world? Because he gave. It would be one thing to sit around, for God to sit back and to emanate love onto the world. It would, it would be one thing for him to do that, but it actually wouldn't do us any good as sinners. And so he didn't just sit back and emanate love onto the world. He sat back and sent his son. We know that God is love because of the way that God loved and the way that God loved, the ultimate expression of God's love is the very giving of his son. But John's not done highlighting that reality. In fact, he digs down deeper and deeper. And it points us then to the second feature of the gift of Jesus that helps us to treasure what we have been given. And it is this, the gift of Jesus was the best that God had to give. The best gift that God had to give was Jesus. Second half of verse nine here Let me begin with the first half. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. Now, there's some heavy loaded theology there. And in fact, our Bibles are probably reading a little bit differently in that section. Literally, the Greek says that God sent his son, the only begotten, into the world. The son is mentioned twice, his son and then the only begotten one or the only begotten son into the world. It's it's pointing to the sonship of Jesus Christ, but it's also pointing to the Trinitarian position of Jesus Christ. This has been a debate that has been raging for for six, seven years or so now about whether we should, amongst other things, whether we should consider the Greek word monogenes to be the one and only or the unique or to be the way that the church for hundreds of years has interpreted that to be the only begotten son of God. It refers 
to what's called the eternal generation of the Son. I I know that's a million-dollar word for you, million-dollar phrase for you. You can now go and talk about the eternal generation of the Son at your Christmas party today and sound like the smartest person there, except when someone says, hey, what does that mean? Uh, I don't know. It refers to not just the sonship of Jesus, but it refers to his position within the Trinity. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, we often say. You think about John's gospel, John chapter 1 most especially, and in fact, John is the is the only Greek writer that uses this word monogenes. He uses it four times in his gospel, twice in John chapter 1, twice in John chapter 3. And then now here in John first chap- John chapter 4. It's a word that doesn't just tell us that the the son is uh, belongs to the father, that Jesus is the son of God because what happens when we think about Jesus as being the son? We most likely think about sonship and fatherhood in the way that humans have sons and fathers. But we have to remember that we can't take personhood and sonship and fatherhood when it comes to human terms and then apply them over to God. That's the mistake that we often make when we read scripture and when we think about theology. We take what we know, what our little minds can comprehend within our own world, and we apply it back into who God is. And so this is where the debate has been raging. Did the son become son at the incarnation? And, and some respected theologians have been saying yes, though they're, they're decreasing in their uh, influence and popularity. The very fact that Jesus is the only begotten son points us back into eternity past. There's never a point in which Jesus became the son. Jesus has always been the son. And this is why the fatherhood and sonship of God within the Trinity and and that relationship shared within the fellowship of the Holy Spirit This is why the Christian God is the only God who is able to be love. Because he is not dependent on a creation in order to love. If you existed by yourself in this entire world, all by yourself, you would have no other person to share your love with, right? You might start doing weird things like you know, finding a, a volleyball and painting a face on it and, you know, like Tom Cruise on the island, you, you, you start loving that volleyball as you go insane. But you wouldn't have another person to love. You wouldn't actually be able to share your love. That's not why God made us. He did not make us because he needed something to love. Rather, he made us because of the love that eternally existed within the Trinity was so great that he didn't want to keep it to himself, but he wanted to share it. And so creation then is a result of the overflow of God's eternal love. It wasn't the point at which God began to love. It was the point at which the overflow of God's eternal love 
spilled out from the triune, from the Trinity himself onto another creation. We see this crystal clear in John chapter 1. I, I read it earlier. John chapter 1, verse 18. John 1, 18 says, no one has ever seen God. Okay, stop right there. We're on board with that. We understand that. No one has seen God. All the books are just lying to you. No one has seen God. Now here, he's talking about God the Father. No one has seen the Father, most especially because God is spirit. You can't see spirit. No one has seen God. John just says it crystal clear. And then he says this, the only God or the, or God, the only begotten son or the only begotten God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. So John says, no one's seen God. And yet at the very same time, there is one who has always been at the father's side or literally in the father's bosom. Who is that one who has always been from eternity in the Father's bosom? It is the only begotten Son of God, the monogenes, the one and only Son, the unique Son, however you want to translate it. It is is that person. And John likes to call that person in the very beginning of his gospel, the Word. But he makes it crystal clear that the, the only begotten son of God who is at the father's side, who is in the father's bosom, demonstrating to us the most intimate and personal connection there ever could be, that one, the word, became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And the angel told Joseph, you better make sure that you name that boy Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So I recognize that's a, a, a massive theological over, you know, flyover. But that is what John is saying here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. That God gave the best gift that he could give the only begotten God, the only begotten Son. God could have demonstrated his love in so many ways, and in fact, he does demonstrate his love in so many ways. A beautiful sunrise and a beautiful sunset. Reflections of the love of God. And we say, God, thank you for sharing with me. That is amazing. But when it came time for God to share that love with humanity, the greatest expression of that love is shared in Jesus. The greatest gift that God had to give, the best that God had to give, the one who owns everything, the one who has an infinite supply of riches, the one who could make the Powerball look like dollars and cents. When it was time for him to share something, to give something, to send someone, he sent the best that he had, his very son. When we think about that reality, the reality that before you were made, before any of this was made, God eternally existed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co 
eternal, co-equal, and consubstantial, being of the same substance or essence, all equally God. And what were they doing before time began? Loving one another in perfect triune fellowship. And when it came time for God to share that love, he made a world, a world that rebelled against him. And so what did he do in order to redeem that world? He sent his son, the only begotten, into the world. The gift of Jesus was the best that God had to give. And yet, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, if you're familiar with 1 John, How does John like to define the world as the very enemy of God, as all that is opposite of God? And yet, where does John say that he sent his only begotten son into? Into enemy territory, into the world, into the world that would have rather stiff-armed him than welcomed him. He gave the best that he had to give in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us then to the third feature of the gift of Jesus that helps us to treasure what we have been given. And in fact, it points us to the intention and the purpose of this sending in the very first place. The gift of Jesus is the source of life. The gift of Jesus is the source of life. End of verse nine, you see a purpose clause there, don't you? So that, why did the Father send the Son into the world? So that we might live through him. So that we might live through him. A couple of things that need to be unpacked in there, right? First of all, so that. It tells us about the intention of the sending of the Son. God had a reason. So that we, who's the we there? Not the world, Christians, all who believe in the Son of God, that's who. God had a specific people that he was determining to save, a specific plan. There was a particular redemption that God had in mind as he sent his Son, and it was for us, Christians, God sent his, world, his son into the world so that everyone would know through the preaching of the gospel that God did it, but the application of that gospel, the, the reality of life embraced through faith in Jesus Christ only comes to the we. You can't reject Jesus and claim to have life. That's the point. And if he sent his son so that we might live through him, that implies that we did not and could not live through him, apart from him. So if you didn't, if you weren't alive, what were you? Dead. And isn't this consistent with the teaching of scripture? Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your transgressions and the trespasses of your sin. Dead. Not half alive, not a zombie, not walking dead, just plain dead. 
You were down in the basement of the hospital, locked up in the morgue because you were dead. And yet, the Father still sent the Son. And the reason that the Father sent the Son was so that we might live through him. So that through the Son, we might come alive. Through the Son, who is the very substance and source of life itself, not only is the one who made all things, according to Colossians 1, but the one who sustains all things and made all things for himself. How does someone come to live? Not just exist, but live. It can only be through Jesus Christ. This is the the profound reality of what it means to be converted, to be born again to new life in Jesus Christ. Not just new life, but actual life. You see, before you came to Christ, you just existed. But since you've come to Christ, you're alive. And the reality is that is the spiritual condition of every single soul that we interact with on a day-to-day basis that does not believe in Jesus Christ. They're dead. Not just kind of dead, not just sort of dead, totally all the way dead. No matter how nice they are, they want nothing to do with the Savior who paid for their sins. Because most likely they think that their niceness means they don't have any sin. And if we're not careful, we can be tempted to think that their niceness maybe does mean that they don't have sin. Now, of course, we would never say that. But how often do we practically live as though we believe that? Do we have that urgency to preach the gospel to people who are dead? Not just dying. The the death has already occurred. It occurred the moment they were born. Dead. The only way to come to life is through the one whom God sent. The Father sent the Son so that through him we might live. The gift of Jesus is the source of life. Number four, the gift of Jesus was initiated by God. Verse 10 The gift of Jesus was initiated by God. Or or you might even say, the gift of Jesus was given in spite of us. First part of verse 10. In this is love. What is John about to do? He's about to define for you what love is. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We'll deal with the sending of the son in just a moment. But now I want us to focus on that first half of verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us. What does John want to make crystal clear that his readers understand about themselves? It was not that they first loved God. Notice where he puts it. He puts it at the very beginning. Okay, guys, let me tell you what love is. Here's a hint. It's not that you loved God. And why would he say something so seemingly rude? It goes back to the fallen condition, doesn't it? 
If apart from Jesus, you cannot have life, then when we were apart from Jesus, we were dead. And dead people can't love anything, can they? And not only do they not love people, but spiritually dead people, the Bible makes crystal clear, not only does not love God, but actually hates him. Hates him. Wants nothing to do with a higher power because that means I have to submit to someone. I am the captain of my ship. I am the master of my soul. And so John wants to make it crystal clear. Listen, God was the initiator to this whole thing because if he did not initiate this whole thing, no one would ever love God. No one would ever be saved by God. And so Paul picks up the very same theme, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When God looks out onto fallen humanity, there's not one thing that he finds lovely. Not one thing. When he looks onto us in our natural condition outside of Christ, he's repelled by us because of his holy character, his holy nature. The minute that holiness comes in contact with sin, either from a human perspective, that person, after they've cleansed themselves, do you think of the Old Testament ceremonial washings? They've cleansed themselves and they have been holy, but now they come in contact with sin, they're no longer holy anymore. But what happens when the holiness of God comes in contact with the sinfulness of humanity? Humanity dies. That's what happens. You remember when Uzzah touched the ark of the Lord? Because it was about to fall onto the ground, a ground which never sinned against God, a ground which was more holy than the man himself. Uzzah thought he was doing the right thing, and yet he failed to understand that God is infinitely holy and that he is infinitely sinful. And so he thought, let me just do you a favor, God. I'll, ca- I'll stop it from touching the dirty ground. And God struck him dead like that. You remember what happened when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit? We sold our property, and this is everything that we have. We just want to give it to the church. And Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And first, the husband fell down dead. Then the wife came in and perpetuated the very same lie. And at the apostles' feet that very moment, she too fell down dead. That's what should happen every time the holiness of God comes in contact with the sinfulness of man, except that God is also patient and merciful. And so John wants to make it crystal clear, it's not that we have loved God. Because if it were up to us, we never would have loved God. But it's that God loved us. Do you want to know the key? Not that I've perfected it. But do you want to know the key to loving people that you find to be not so loving? Now you might not ever say to them, I don't think that you're very loving. 
by not meaning that you love me, I don't think that you're very lovable. You're just a difficult person, hard to love. You probably wouldn't say that to them, but do you want to know the key to being able to love them? Think about the way that God loved you and then love like that. Because no matter how how much tension you might have with another Christian or another human being, that pales in comparison to how much tension there was between you and God. You were completely and entirely unlovable, and yet he set his love on you anyway. He is the initiator of this gift. He is the initiator of God's love. In fact, it doesn't even begin at the point where you were saved. It actually began in eternity past. Listen to Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. God's love begins not at the moment of your conversion. God's love for you, dear Christian, began before the world existed. From eternity past, God determined that he would adopt a people for himself. And he knew full well that those people would be sinful rebels who wanted nothing to do with him. And yet he loved them anyways. When we struggle to love, we must melt our hard hearts with the love of God for us. And so, the gift of Jesus was initiated by God. And then finally, the gift of Jesus is the key to our forgiveness. The gift of Jesus is the key to our forgiveness for us and for anyone who would want life. The womb and the tomb are connected together. We focus rightly on the incarnation of Jesus Christ and we sing wonderful songs about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But we have to be careful that we don't forget that the incarnation of Jesus Christ leads to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everybody wants to talk about the gift of a savior, but they don't want to acknowledge that that savior is the propitiation for their sins. And so John finishes verse 10 with not only that the father sent his son or that he loved us, but he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What was the purpose of the sending? To save, right? How would the saving be accomplished? If there's enmity between God and man, then there needed to be someone who would take on that punishment, take on the just wrath of God, take on God's right condemnation of death because of sin. And in steps Jesus. Propitiation is a wonderful word, yet it's a word that we often lose. In fact, not even every Bible translates it that way. It's a word that points to a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God 
and brings us into the pleasure and love of God. You maybe have heard the illustration before that propitiation is like a, you seeing a child playing out in the middle of the street because they're not paying attention and a truck comes barreling at the child. They can't see the child and, and you at the last moment decide that you are going to propitiate the force of that truck by throwing yourself in front of it so that the child would be saved. You maybe have heard of that, that propitiation is the absorption of the consequences of that. But that's only half of what propitiation is. Propitiation would be more like the driver of the truck can't stop, sees the child, gets out of the car as it's barreling toward the child and somehow absorbs the contact of that truck so that the child would be saved. In ancient days, they talked about the gods being propitiated to them. And they would offer, and in fact, they still do this all over the world, they would offer sacrifices to the gods so that the gods would be, at least for the moment, delighted with them rather than angry with them. They were the ones that initiated that. But notice here what's happening. It's not us that initiated it. It's God that initiated the propitiation. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John Stott said this, it is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiation and God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his own son when he took our place and died for us. Make no mistake, the wrath of God against the sin of man will be satisfied. Some will satisfy that wrath by paying for their sins eternally in hell. Others will see that Jesus has satisfied that wrath for them. That on the cross, Jesus paid for every one of the sins of his people. And more than that, his resurrection secures their justification. And he now lives to make intercession for the saints. At 1 John 2, earlier, John says, if you do sin, then you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Christianity, it turns out, as the Bible explains it so clearly, is all about Jesus. It's not about what you did. It's not about what you could do. It's not about what you will do. It's all about Jesus. What he has done. What he is doing. And what he will do one day, finally, when he calls his saints to be home with him. I have to ask you, do you believe that? I mean, I can hardly believe it, but do you believe that? 
If that is where you trust, if that is the source of your happiness, the source of your joy, the very fact that you are a rebel against God, yet Jesus, God himself, came to pay for your sins, rise from the grave, if that and that alone is what you consider to be what makes you right before God, then Merry Christmas. But if it's not, my friend, I want to encourage you, repent right now. Turn to Jesus right now. The very fact that he is Emmanuel, God with us, tells us that although he is repelled by our sin in his holy justice, his holiness also extends in mercy and patience. He's repelled by us, but he comes to us. And so will you receive him by faith even right now? Augustine was one of the most brilliant Christian minds, most brilliant Christian theologians to walk the earth. As he was reflecting upon the incarnation of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did and all that it means for God to become man, he said this, the word of the Father by whom all time was created was made flesh and bone in time for us. He, without whose divine permission, no day completes its course, wished to have one of those days for his human birth. The maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied in the journey, that he, the truth, might be accused of false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice itself, might be condemned by the unjust, that he, discipline personified, might be scourged with a whip, that he, the foundation, might be suspended on a cross, that he, courage incarnate, might be weak, and he, security itself, might be wounded, and he, life itself, might die. You see, my friends, in the giving of the gift of Jesus Christ, we have the greatest gift ever given. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a gift you are. Father, thank you for sending your most precious gift, the very one who is now our most precious gift. And Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes to these realities. We would have never known had you not showed us. We would have never come to you, Jesus, had you not come to us. And so we thank you for what you've done for us. And we ask that with your help, by your grace, by the power of your spirit, by the instruction of your word, we would truly treasure you as our greatest gift. 
Father, we understand that we can only pray this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.